You're listening to Qalam Institute's podcast. Visit us on the web at qalaminstitute.org and join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash qalaminstitute. Bismillah walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Inshallah we're continuing with our series on the seerah, the prophetic biography of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. In the previous session we were talking about, actually since the sessions have started, aside from the first couple of sessions where we talked about the objectives and the method and the purpose and benefit of studying the seerah, over the last four to five sessions we've been talking about pre-Islamic society and the conditions that existed before the even the birth of the Prophet let alone the prophethood being given to the Prophet and wahi, divine revelation arriving even before the birth of the Prophet the, in the previous session we were talking about, we're pretty much at the brink of getting to know the immediate family of the Prophet such as his grandfather, his uncles and then of course his parents as well, and then getting into the birth of the Prophet But the previous session we talked about kind of as an introduction to learning about his family, particularly his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib, we were talking about a couple of the key landmark incidents that occurred very close to the birth of the Prophet And the thing about this is, this is not important to know just as a tidbit, just as an issue of history. It's not just a random fact about pre-Islamic history. But it's very important and pertinent because as the scholars of Sirah, they point out that these major events were occurring almost as a foretelling of the birth of the Prophet That's something monumental, something great, something that is about to change the course of humanity and the, and the world uh, as we know it. Something major and drastic is about to happen. Something monumental is about to occur. And so these events were the foretelling of that great event that was the birth of the Prophet so, and, and it directly involved the grandfather of the Prophet And of course, this was by no coincidence either. And these incidents also involved places that are very sacred even within the Islamic tradition from the teachings of Muhammad The first of those incidents was the rediscovering, all right, the discovery of the well of Zamzam. That the well of Zamzam, of course, we talked about its origins and how it became lost and buried after a certain amount of time. And then, of course, Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather of the Prophet ﷺ, was given the location of the well through a dream. And he was able to go there and dig this up. And so he was given the blessing of being the person who, re- who uncovered this great blessing that we know as the well of Zamzam. And, and, and I mean, we understand very well the Islamic significance of it. I talked about it with some uh, textual evidence as well, but we obviously understand its importance. You know, we have millions of people as we speak right now preparing to undergo next week the great journey as, that we know as Hajj. People are heading out from now. Um, on the way to Hajj, and so we know that Zamzam is of course something very important and significant. The second event that we got into, at least the beginning of that conversation, and that is the invasion by the army of the elephants. Alright, the year of the elephant, I told you that the year in which the Prophet was born, was born is known as Amul Fil, the year of the elephant. And that in and of itself is very indicative of how huge this event was and how it was understood by the people of that time that this defined them 
You know, this was something that literally defined these people. You know, there's there's always something major in every generation that happens. And the people of that generation, they, they identify with that great event. You know, uh, for a lot of people like here, even the entire generation, but especially here in Dallas, the previous generation, one of the those types of events that they used to identify with, or they everybody knew where they were when that happened, was like the assassination of JFK. And that happened here in Dallas. So everyone knew, where were you? What were you doing when all of a sudden the news broke and you were listening to the radio and they told you? For, for our generation, it was 9-11. You know, everybody remembers who they, where they were and who they were with and how they heard the news. So there's some type of a huge event that occurs every generation. And people remember that. People almost identify themselves with it. And so that, type, that incident at that time in that era was the invasion of the army of the elephants. All right, and that was known as that drastic landmark event. We talked a little bit about the history of Yemen and exactly who was in power in Yemen at that time and how he exactly came into power. We talked a, lot, a little bit about that history and we got to know a little bit better, uh, a little bit more about this, this enigmatic individual known as Abraha, all right, the, the infamous Abraha. Some, uh, a name that even Sunday school children are taught. Even Sunday school children know. And so we got to know a little bit more about him, what he was motivated by, what he was inspired by, and what exactly led him to do what he did. You know, what, what pushed him to the brink where he was willing to do something so, um, you know, so heinous, so nefarious. And we talked how he built this cathedral. And in fact, um, in between last week and this week, I was just looking online and doing a lot of research and reading in. And, and that, that place where that cathedral was, Qulais, is still known even till today. Qulais, it's still known till today. And it's kind of marked there. And when people visit, they actually, they, a lot of times they go there and they visit that, uh, that place and they see it. It's like one of those places where you go for sightseeing. And what exactly happened with that cathedral, we'll talk about towards the end of the session tonight. Nevertheless, he builds this place, yes, as a sacred space, but I talked about how Abraha was, well, he was obviously somebody who ha was religious, who identified with his religion as a Christian. Nevertheless, he was more of a military strategist. He was a, a, a economic and military strategist, is who he was as a leader. That was his identity. So he wasn't the priest king or the priest leader, he was more of the military, the army, the general, the economist leader is who he was. And so building a cathedral for him was a very strategic move. It wasn't just purely out of religious devotion that he built it, but nevertheless it was more of a strategic move, how he could bring viability back to this area that had been decimated, that had been ravaged, that had been so bleak for so long. There were famines, there were droughts, there were floods. Natural disaster after natural disaster had left this entire region, had left it completely depleted. And so he wanted to make his place his homeland. So it was also very patriotic for him. He wanted to make it viable again. All right, And so he builds this cathedral and he says, we'll be able to attract the masses and we'll be able to bring the people back. Like people go flock to Mecca today for the Kaaba. So definitely he had his eyes set on the Kaaba, but I talked about this last week. He had his eyes set on the Kaaba more as a competition, more as a rivalry, but a competition. And so he said, we'll, bring, we'll build something that rivals that and we'll be able to bring people our way as well. And our, city, our place, our land will flourish as Mecca and Hijaz flourishes today. 
What ended up happening at that time is, and he wrote a letter back to the Najashi, the king of Abyssinia, and he wrote a letter to him saying that, I've built a place that will make you proud, and I've devoted and dedicated to you, and I've built it so that we can, you know, redirect people from the Mecca back to here. And this kind of became public information that Abraha is kind of, he's built his own shop and he's trying to compete with our store. Almost like that type of a mentality. And, and so some, a Kanani, one of the Arab uh, people from that area, he comes out to there, he comes to, visits this place, this huge cathedral, and he goes in there and he defiles it. All right, he violates it, he vandalizes it. All right, and, and specifically the narrations talk about the fact that he used a restroom inside of it. Like, not in the restroom, but he basically, he, 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 he you know, um, just did his business like in the middle of the cathedral. And then not only that, but it even goes as far as talking about how he took, you know, his excrements and then rubbed it all over the walls and the decorations and all the ornate fixtures and really, really did a number on the place. Now, he leaves, he moves on. The next day, Abraha, when people discover it, and it's brought to Abraha's attention right away, because this is his project, this is his baby. So it's brought to his attention, and he's enraged. Like, he sees red. I mean, nothing makes sense to him anymore. He only has one thing on his mind, and that is the, the, the P, and, and then the word on the street, by the way, this individual narrations actually talk about it. He goes and he brags about what he did. And some of them kind of take it up as kind of a rallying point. Like, yeah, that's what we did. That's what we did to you. You're going to try to compete with our Kaaba? That's what we'll do to you. And when this news hits the street that these people are bragging about what they did and they're taking credit for what he did, he just, he set out on a mission then. I will destroy the Kaaba. They want to defile my cathedral, I will destroy their Kaaba. And I talked about how a very subtle but nevertheless important point that we learned from this is that's why we have the etiquette in Islam. We have a truth, and we speak our truth, all right? But nevertheless, we have an etiquette within Islam that in speaking our truth and delivering our message, we never, ever, ever desecrate. We do not violate, we do not defile, we do not degrade other people's belief systems and what they might engage in. We give them the message, we give them the da'wah, but at the end of the day, we leave them be. Even if you don't want to look at it in terms of we respect what they worship or what they do, that's fine. But we do leave them be. All right, we don't impose our will onto someone and we definitely do not mock and we do not de defile and we do not desecrate other people's worship or what they worship and how they worship. That is an established principle. The Quran talks about how do not curse their gods, their false deities, their idols. Why? Because then they will curse Allah. They'll do it out of animosity. When somebody pushes you, what's your very first instinct? To push back. Sometimes you don't even think about where you are and who it is and what they're doing or what they're saying or who's around you. Right, so it could be the masjid. And you are the most respectful, calm, peaceful individual. But if somebody walks up and shoves you really hard, your very first instinct is to shove back. And then you realize where you're at. And you admit your mistake, but it's just that human reaction. Aduan. Right, somebody will cross the line against me, so I'm gonna cross the line back against them. ilmin, Without a proper understanding and knowledge of what they're doing. And so that's exactly what happened in this case. So Abraha gathers an army together. Some of the Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, mentions a narration where he says he had 60,000 soldiers. So I just want you to just get an idea of the sheer number of people he gathered together.
This is, again, this is a general, this is a military strategist, this is somebody who led a coup against his own key and his own um, uh, leadership, and so obviously he's got the military resources, so he gathers an army of 60,000 strong. And then it said that he actually sends for and recruits an individual who is an elephant breeder, an elephant herder, whatever you want to call it, all right? And he, bring, he recruits this elephant breeder and tells him to bring his elephants. And there were up to about a dozen elephants, all right? And he specifically gets them for a couple of reasons. Not only because of the sheer power, it's like rolling into town with a dozen bulldozers, all right? You just walk through. You don't even fight at that point. You just walk through and it's done. All right? And remember, we're not talking about modern day structures like this. We're talking about clay huts and mud huts and little homes and shacks. You're just going to walk through town. Secondly, also being a military strategist, he realizes the element of human fear. All right? And something being alien. Elephants were something the Arabs had never seen before. Now, the, Abraha himself is affiliated and associated with the powers that are, sent, that are located, that are centered out of, the, out of Eastern Africa the Horn of Africa. And so he knows, he's gone there and he's seen these majestic beasts, these animals, right? And so he's familiar, but generally speaking, an Arab has never seen an elephant before. It's like seeing an alien. And so just the sheer shock and the fear would, cat, would, would, would make people catatonic, would freeze people, would confuse people. And people would go running for the hills. And that's exactly what, what was his strategy, and it worked to quite an extent. So I was talking about how he gathers all these people together, and he heads out on his way. Now, here's the very interesting thing. I told you last week that the Qur'anic narrative of this incident focuses in on the decimation of Araha and his army. Right, how they were destroyed, how Allah sent His miraculous army, Allah sent these birds with the pebbles, and it completely decimated that army and destroyed them and defended the Kaaba by means of them. That is the focus of the Quranic narrative. From the Sirah perspective, what, it's almost like the Sirah, like, of course, we understand, and I talked about in the initial sessions, they, this complements the Quran and our understanding of the Quran, it supplements it. So the Sirah narrative focuses on the, the journey. All right, aside from what sparked this, then especially the journey, the journey on the way to the Kaaba. And then the Quran gives us a very, very accurate, very descriptive picture of exactly what happened. But the journey is very important. And it highlights a lot of key, very interesting things. So, Abraha sets out on his journey. As he starts traveling upwards, north, He's of course passing by the Arabs and then all these different Arab tribes and these cities and locations and towns. And people hear about him coming as well. That Abraha has gathered an army, I mean 60,000 large, you know, especially back in those days, it's going to be noticed. And so people notice and people hear and people, some people start to prepare and they start to get ready. We got to defend him, we got to ward him off, we got to fight him. Why? Because for all the Arabs, Mecca, the Kaaba in Mecca specifically was a very sacred place. All right, it was a sacred institution, it was a sacred place. And so they want to defend it, and they want to, and this is seen as a defense of their honor at the same time. And so they're gathering together, and they start to rally each other together to defend the Kaaba, and to fight against Sabraha. Something very interesting, that one thing is mentioned within the narrations is, as Sabraha is traveling, and I talked about this yesterday, uh, uh, last week, and I don't want this to be misunderstood, but... Abraha was a, was a tyrant by 
all definitions, Abraha was a tyrant. You know, I talked about how even in building the Qulays, if somebody was a little late to work, he would literally cut their hands off. If they were late toward the construction side, he would cut their hands off. So he was a tyrant. But at the same time, he being a military strategist, being a very intelligent man, he wasn't just bloodthirsty. There's a difference. He wasn't just outright bloodthirsty. And so as he's traveling through and he's meeting with people and talking to people, he would actually make time to speak to a lot of the leaders and a lot of the people that he would come across. And one of the things that he was telling them was, he would tell them exactly what happened to the Qulays. He would tell them that, look, somebody came and defiled it. So the narration actually mentions that, جِهَادَهُ حَقًّا عَلَيْهِمْ Right? And so one of the things is, aside from fighting him, they thought that this was obligatory on them to defend the Kaaba and fight him. But some of them kind of even understood why he was there. They understood, like, yeah, if, you, if somebody would have done that to the Kaaba, we'd be knocking on your door as well. If one of your people did that to the Kaaba, you, could, you better well expect us. And so, but nevertheless, they, they understood that fighting against him is something that we are obligated to do. Alright? They knew that this was a sacred place, and so they knew defending it and its honor is our responsibility, something we are obligated to do. So now, as he's traveling through, one of the people that he comes across is Dhu Nafar. And this man Dhu Nafar was the king, like the leader of his people, and these were people that were located right at the, almost what you could imagine to be the border or the boundary of the, of the Yemen region and the Hijaz region. So the, the border and the, 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 the boundary of that place, there was a tribe that was settled near there, and the leader of that tribe, literally who they saw to be their king, it was a man by the name of Dhu Nafar. And that's what they, at least that's what they used to call him. And he gathered his people together and he, you know, rallied everyone together from around his tribe as well. And he gathered together and came out to fight Abraha. Abraha's army literally ran over his army. They ran over his army. They were able to defeat them very easily. Finally, this leader of the army that was gathered to fight against Abraha, he was brought, he was brought to Abraha. And when he was brought to Abraha, and Abraha was about to give the issue, about to issue the command to kill this man. He says, Ya ayyuhal malik, la taqtulni. He said, Listen, king, don't kill me. Because leaving me alive, like keeping me with you, fine, take me as a prisoner. But keeping me alive might end up working out for you. You know, I know these people, I know people, people respect me, people know me. And so having me with you might actually serve some type of a tangible practical benefit. And so why don't you think this through? So Abraha says, all right, fine. That makes a lot of sense. This is a strategist. So he says, okay, fine. Don't kill him. Tie him up. He's a prisoner of war with us. As they proceed forward, they come across another tribe, another group of people that have gathered together, two tribes by the name of Shahran and Nahis at the place of Khatham. They come across them, they've been rallied together by their leader by the name of Nufail bin Habib, alright, Al-Khatha'ami. He's rallied and gathered his people together, the people from these two tribes, Shahran and Nahis, and now they're fighting against Abraha as well. Of course, again, Abraha literally just walks over their army, he destroys them, and once he destroys them and defeats them, he takes the leader, uh, uh, he takes the leader, 
Nufail, he takes him as a prisoner of war. So he's got these two leaders, Dhu-Nafr and Nufail, the two leaders who had the courage and the audacity to actually fight against Abraha, stand up against him. He takes him as prisoners of war and he proceeds on his way. Now as he proceeds, and now he's kind of gaining a bit of a reputation, so this isn't just all pomp and show. He's literally ran over two armies. It's, they, they haven't even been speed bumps. Right, just, he's just going, he's just tearing through. So now he's starting to develop a little bit of a reputation. So as he starts to come across more and more Arab tribes, more and more of them are unwilling to fight him. They're not resisting him, they're giving up, they're surrendering as he arrives and they're letting him just walk right on by. So much so that he comes across Ta'if. When he crosses Ta'if, the leader of the uh, Thaqif tribe, uh, by the name of Mas'ud al-Thaqafi, he comes out to meet Abraha and he says, Ayyuhal Malik, innama nahnu abiduk. O king, we are your slaves. So not just surrendering, we're at your service. Sami'una lak, muti'un, laysa indana laka khilafun. Wa laysa baytana hadal bayt alladhi turidu. He says that not only are we your slaves, but we will obey you, we will listen to you, we are at your service. And by the way, we have no disagreement with you. We are completely in agreement with you. And just so that you know, we have no affinity, we have no affiliation with that house that you're going to destroy, the Kaaba. We don't have anything to do with that. We have our own bait. And remember I, I had mentioned a few sessions back, talking about the religion of the Arabs before Islam, that they were, of course, primarily idol worshippers, but then it had kind of escalated. The practice had escalated to the point where they had specific idols, and just like they had the Kaaba in Mecca to house the idols, they started building houses. They started building sanctuaries. All right, they started building religious shrines to these idols in different major locations. So Ta'if was one of the lo those locations where the major idol of Allat was located and they had literally built a shrine around there and he said, that's where we worship, that's where we go. We ain't got nothing to do with the Kaaba. So you feel free to do whatever you want to do. Not only that, but I'll one-up you. I'll give you something else, I'll give you something extra. Then this man, Mas'ud al-Thaqafi, he says, I got a guy by the name of Abu Rigal. I, have, I got a guy by the name of Abu Rigal. This guy is like the human map. Alright, this guy is a human map. He's like a human GPS. This guy knows exactly, he knows how to go. He knows all the roads and all the routes. And not only that, but he's like a scout. Like he knows everybody along the way. He knows where people live. This guy's the ultimate guide. So I'm going to send him with you. Free of charge. As a gift. Just to let you know that we're on the same side here. You ain't got to run over our town. We're cool. Alright, so he, he gives him this man Abu Rigal and he says, you lead him to Mecca. So this, they head out on their way now. So you're seeing two dynamics. You're seeing some tribes, some people starting to stand up to Abraha, fighting against him, but getting obliterated. Alright, and their leaders, their, their kings, their tribe leaders being taken prisoners of war. And then you find another dynamic where some of the tribes are completely rolling over and letting Abraha pass by. And not only that, but then you find certain conniving type of leaders where they're even willing to help him out. They're willing to, um, they're, they're willing to, you know, even work with him and help him out and help him accomplish his goal. So now he's on his way and he's got this guide with him. Little bit of an interjection of history here. They reach a place outside of Mecca by the name of Al-Muhammis. There's a little place, a little landmark outside of Mecca known as Al-Muhammis. They reach this place and that guide, Abu Rigal, he ends up dying over there. He gets really, really ill, he gets very sick, he catches a fever and he dies. Reason why I mention this is something kind of interesting. 
he dies at this place and he's buried over there obviously later on much after the story is over and we all know the outcome of the story the quran tells us so obviously the arabs they survive and the kaaba is okay and everything's all right well guess what once everything is said and done and everything's over now you kind of go back and you check who did what and who was down with what and who was doing what abu rigal everybody knows okay he was one of our people he was a thaqafi he was a man from taif he was an an arab he was arab and he did this he was guiding these people here and he was working with them and he was serving the king. So they see him as a traitor. He's basically the pre-Islamic Arabian Benedict Arnold. All right, so before there was Benedict Arnold, there was Abu Rihal. All right, so that's who he is. And so, I mean, it literally becomes a cuss word. Like when we call somebody a Benedict Arnold, like a traitor, right? That's, that's what that is. That's what that's known as. All right, so he gets known as a traitor. So like for the youngins, like he's LeBron James. Like somebody who helped and left his city and left his team and left his people, right? So that's what he's known as. So <laughs> Abu Rigal is like the olden LeBron James, right? So that's who he is. People know him. Like this guy, tra he was a, the ultimate traitor. And so where he's buried, now they go back out and they find, okay, he ended up dying, he's buried here. And that becomes like a place. Like when we go for Hajj right now, and we're going to do the Jamarat, they used to go out there and do Jamarat on Abu Rigal's grave. They would throw stones, they would go and they would spit, they would go and they would like pour like the, you know, dump the intestines of animals on his grave. It, play, it was a place where you would go and you would defile the place to show your disdain for such a traitor. Somebody would turn his back on the house of Allah, you know, because I, I told you even the pre-Islamic Arabs still saw it as a sacred place, and a pe man who would turn his back on his people. So that's what he was known as. And something else very interesting that some of the scholars, they mention in certain narrations, and that is, and in fact, Ibn Kathir in his uh, seerah, in his book, Al-Bidai wa Nihaya, when talking about the history of the Arabs, he talks about the people of Thamud. And we know the Thamud, the people of the Thamud, Salih salam, was sent to Thamud, they, they were Arabs. And in fact, their ruins were still located in the Hijaz region. So when the Prophet was traveling much, much later in his life, towards the end of his life, when he was tra traveling to Tabuk, they passed the ruins of Thamud. And the Prophet covered his face and he started to do his tighfar and told the Sahaba to ask Allah for forgiveness and for safety and security as they passed by. So we know the Thamud people were from the Arabs. The Arabs knew about the history of Thamud. Something very interesting that Ibn Kathir mentions was there was a man by the name of Abu Rigal amongst the Thamud as well. There was a man by the name of Abu Rigal amongst the Thamud as well. And even in the Thamud, he was a very notorious individual. He was someone who actually used to discourage people from worshipping and from praying. And he was one of the key ringleaders um, who was against the Prophet Salih alayhi salam. So even the ancient man, Abu Rigal, this guy's namesake, if you will, he was also a very, very bad person. And so Ibn Kathir makes a connection and he says, what ended up happening to him was that because he was such an enemy and he led the people against, you know, Salih salam and the Prophet and the Messenger, and eventually the punishment of Allah came upon these people, um, some of the narrations mention something that, to the effect that he wasn't killed along with the rest of his people. He was gone away when the punishment of Allah descended. So he was one of those few survivors. And what ended up happening was that when people got to know later on, when people heard that this was the man and he used to tell his people to not listen to the Prophet and look at the punishment of Allah descended upon his people, people ended up stoning him and people end, literally ended up stoning him to death for dooming his people. Because he was a ringleader, he was an instigator. 
So nevertheless, Ibn Kathir rahimahullah kind of makes that connection about, look, that man was named Abu Rigal, he was stoned to death, and this man was named Abu Rigal, and his grave used to be stoned by the Arabs as well. So he makes that type of a connection there. And nevertheless, we know the spiritual significance is from the teachings of the Prophet ﷺ, giving good names, and that, that part of giving a good name to your child is almost like a dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bring about those same qualities, traits, and characteristics within your child, whether it be a good meaning or a be named after a noteworthy individual. It's almost like a motivational technique to the child or it's like making a dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless your child with these type of qualities. Nevertheless, going forward, so now Abraha is on the outskirts of Mecca. That's where we're at. He's on the outskirts of Mecca, parked there with his 60,000 large army, with his dozen elephants or so, and he's just parked outside of Mecca. He sends an individual, a man, into Mecca, and Al-Aswad bin Maqsud, he sends him into, and this was, a, this was an African man, a Habashi individual, he sends him into Mecca and he says, go and find out some stuff and see what's going on and see what you can find out. And try to talk to some of the leadership there and convey my message to those people. Let them know, and he conveys a very specific message. He says, let them know that I'm not here to kill you. I have literally no interest in killing anyone. I didn't come here to shed blood. I've come here with a very specific purpose, all right? I'm here to knock down the Kaaba. That's it. So if you get out of my way, if you don't resist, nobody's gonna get hurt today. I'm gonna come inside, I'm gonna do what I gotta do, and I'm gonna leave, I'm gonna be on my way. You'll be okay, I'll be okay, everybody will be okay. So just clear my path. That's it, that's my message. Deliver this message, take this message into the people, into the folks. Now, one of the things that ended up happening as the army of Abraha was camped out, now you can imagine 60,000 people, it's a huge army, and these aren't, you know, the most, uh, a lot of times they don't tend to be the, the best of people, all right? So they start to raid places, and they're looking for food, and they're just trying to gain some stuff, so they start raiding uh, a few houses and a few towns and villages, and they find a bunch of camels grazing, and they raid the camels, and they start doing that. So they find a pasture that has 200 camels grazing on it and a shepherd there. They go, they kill the shepherd, they take the 200 camels and they take them and they bring them back to the camp. We're gonna have a feast, we're gonna have a good time, 200 camels. Now when this man, Allah bin Maqsud, when he goes into Mecca and he starts asking around, I need to talk to your leader, I need to talk to your leader. Now we know Mecca, I've talked about this, the political system before Islam, they didn't necessarily have one elected leader, they didn't have a king, nothing of that nature. But de by default, the leadership, you know, the, 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 the go-to guy where everything eventually ended up with was Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather of the Prophet So they direct him to Abdul Muttalib, they say, go talk to him. If there is anybody, he's the guy to talk to. So he says, okay, he goes and he talks to him and he says, you know, our king is here, we have our army, he's here to destroy the Kaaba, and that's it. So Abdul Muttalib tells him, says, I need to talk to your king. And he says, okay, I can, I can set that up. I can set that up, I can have you. And he goes, I just need you to get me some time to be able to talk to your king. So he says, fine, that's good. Actually, first generation talks about uh, Abdul Muttalib after talking to this messenger, he goes in and he gathers all the leaders of Mecca and Quraysh together and he says, here's the deal. This is what's going on. They initially get very excited and riled up. They say, let's go out and fight him. But then they kind of come to their senses and they say, we don't have the means or the resources to fight him. He'll kill everybody. So we don't know what to do. 
Can you go and just reason with him? Abdul Muttalib says, sure. So he tells his man, Aswad, he says, I need to go talk to your king. That's all I need. I just need you to set up a face-to-face meeting. So he says, fine, okay. I think I can help you out with that. They come in, and now what this man, who was the messenger, what he does is he talks to the Sa'is. Alright, the Sa'is, Sa'is al-Fil. What that basically means is that breeder of the elephants, the elephant breeder, he talks to him and he goes, you know, he's somebody that the king is keeping very close to him because of these elephants and how to manage these elephants. And he's kind of won some favor with the king. He has an ear with the king. And so let me talk to him and let me see if he can get you some FaceTime. He can get you through the door. So now he brings Abdul Muttalib out to the encampment and they're walking through. And next thing you know, Abdul Muttalib spots that same leader of his tribe, Dhu Nafar. Remember the one that stood up against his people and was taken as a prisoner of war? He spots him. So he goes to Dhu Nafar and he says, Can you help me out? Can you get me some FaceTime to the king? First of all, he says, Can you help us out? Do you got any inside information? Can you help us out with something? Dhu Nafar says, he says, how is a prisoner supposed to help you who is tied up by the king? I don't know if he's going to kill me tomorrow morning or tomorrow evening. Like, I don't know if he'll kill me in the morning or kill me in the evening. How do you expect me to help you? What I can do is I can try to get you into the door to meet with the king. So Abdul Muttalib is working a couple of angles. The king finally hears that, okay... He wants to talk, and by the way, that, that, that elephant breeder, his name was Unais. It's, it's kind of important, it's something that comes up later. So his name is Unais. So they get Abdul Muttalib through the door, and Abdul Muttalib gets some FaceTime with the king. And this is why I was saying that Abraha, while being however he was, he was somebody who was still willing to dialogue and willing to talk. So he, he agrees to meet with Abraha. Abraha, walks into, uh, Abraha agrees to meet with Abdul Muttalib. Abdul Muttalib walks through the door. As soon as Abraha lays eyes on him, Abdul Muttalib was a very impressive individual. I mean, aside from being very physically, like he had, a, he had a great physical presence. He was tall, he was broad, but at the same time, he just had this aura about him. He was a natural born leader. And obviously, as I mentioned previously, some of the scholars identify him from the Hunafa, those last few people left, those dozen or so people left, who were still worshiping one God, one Allah properly. So there naturally had to be a certain, you know, just dignity about the individual. All right, about being in a proper spiritual condition. So there had to be just some type of a presence of such a man. And so as soon as he walks through the door, Abraha sees Abdul Muttalib as, as instantly affected by seeing this man. He's just filled with awe and respect for this man, that this looks like a respectful human being. This looks like a dignified man. He's a leader. He just sees, like, you know, he, he sees confidence in Abdul Muttalib. So now Abraha wants to show him a gesture of respect. He doesn't want him to come and sit on his throne with him. So what he does is he himself comes and sits down on the ground and he asks Abdul Muttalib to come and sit with me. That's, that's, that's huge in and of itself. So Abraha sits on the ground, asks Abdul Muttalib to join him, sit on the, down on the ground with him and has some you know, hospitality presented for him. And he says, yes, what can I do for you? You know why I'm here and you know I'm not going back without getting what I want. But you're obviously here to talk, so you must. You look like an impressive, reasonable human being, intelligent man. So, what would you like to talk to me about? Abdul Muttalib tells him. He says, "You know, I own two hundred camels, and uh, my camels were raided by your people, by your soldiers, and I would just really would appreciate my camels returned back to me." 
Now, you can imagine, this is an old story, we all know it, but just, I mean, try to imagine just being there in that room. Try to imagine being a fly on the wall, right? Just, just, just imagine what, that must, what your reaction would be to hearing Abdul Muttalib say that, regardless of what side of the issue you're on. If you're one of the Arabs and you want to slap Abdul Muttalib across the face, like, homeboy, your camels can wait for later. Alright? And if you're on the other king side of the army, then you're just... You all of a sudden are very relaxed. That these seem to be some pretty unintelligent people, to say the least. Like, I don't think we have to worry about these people. I don't think these people get it. I don't think they understand what we're here to do. They seem pretty oblivious. Right? So everything we heard about these people is right. They're just a bunch of nomads roaming around in the desert. He's still here to talk about his camels. Foolish man. And so Abraha's reaction is exactly the same. Abraha actually tells him, he goes, you know when you walk through the, when you walk through the door, then I, I was instantly in awe of you. I was very impressed by you. I said, here's a man, here's a leader. But he says, Kunta As soon as I saw you, I was actually shocked and surprised by you. I was very in awe of you. But now when I hear you talk, he says, are you really here to talk to me about 200 camels that you say I have of yours? And you are not here to talk to me about the bait, the Baytullah al-Haram? That place that is literally the center point of your religion and the religion of your forefathers? Your religion is based out of there. Your whole identity is based there. And you're not here to talk to me about that? You're here to talk about 200 camels? What's wrong with you? That's when Abdul Muttalib said those very famous words. Very famous statement of Abdul Muttalib's. He said to him, Inni ana Rabbul Ibl. You see, what I want you to understand is, I own these camels. Wa inna lil bayti rabban sayyimna'uhu. Inni ana Rabbul Ibl. I'm the owner of these camels, so they're my responsibility. I'm here to take, defend my property. Wa inna lil bayti rabban. But what you're not realizing is that that house that you're going to attack also has an owner, also has a master. Sayyamna'uhu. And he'll take care of it. He'll, he'll defend it. In fact, Abdul Muttalib, even when the messenger first came to him in Mecca, Abdul Muttalib told him, فَإِيَمْنَعُهُ مِنْهُ فَهُوَ حَرَمُهُ وَبَيْتُهُ وَإِنْ يُخَلِّي بَيْنَهُ وَبَيْنَهُ فَوَاللَّهِ مَا عِنْدَنَا دَفْعٌ عَنْهُ He said, look, this is Allah's house. If Allah wants to defend it, Allah will defend it. It's his haram, it's his bait, it's his house. But if Allah wants to leave it be, and if Allah wants to clear the path between Abraha and the bait, the Kaaba, then we can't defend it. Wallahi, we know none of us can do anything. I swear to God, none of us are capable of doing anything. It's up to Allah what Allah wants to do. And so Abdul Muttalib tells Abraha, it's Allah's place. Allah will take care of it. I'm here to speak on behalf of my property. So why don't we get back on topic then? And Abraha is, you know, and Abdul Muttalib is intelligent, he's confident. The way he says it, 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 it resonates. And not just for us as, as Muslims, but anyone who has any shred of spirituality, a statement like that would resonate with them. Like, yo, this guy knows what he's talking about. Like, that's deep. You know, when we hear that, we're like, yo, that's deep. And so that's exactly Abraha. You know, Abdul Muttalib just drops a hammer on him. You want to go mess with the rub of the bait? Hey, be my guest. I ain't nobody to tell you not to. 
Looks like you're one of those fellas that learns the hard way. So go ahead. And now Abraha is kind of taken aback. So Abraha says, "Ma kana liyamta amini, Says nothing can stop me. What's gonna stop me? You see my army? You see my elephants? What's gonna stop me? Are you kidding me? Abdul Muttalib says, "Anta wadaka." Okay, you and Allah, you guys take it up. You and the Rabb, you take it up. I mean, don't ask me. I don't know what's gonna stop you. you. It's between you and him. It's none of my business. فَرَدَ عَلَىٰ عَبْدُ الْمُتَّلِبِ بِلَهُ He gives Abdul Muttalib his camels back. He says, hey, somebody raid some camels? Yeah, bring them here, give them back to him. And Abdul Muttalib heads back on his way. Now when Abdul Muttalib, فَلَمَنْ صَرَفَ عَبْدُ الْمُتَّلِبِ لَا قُرَيْشِ فَأَخْبَرَهُمَ الْخَبَرِ He gets back to Quraysh and he tells him exactly what happened. And he also lets him know, this man's not a back-to-back down. This man's not here to reason. He's not here to talk. He's not backing down. I advise all of you, clear out the town. Evacuate Makkah. So they evacuate Makkah. They leave. And they head up into the mountains. And they camp out into the mountains and they just wait for the storm to blow over. Before, as they're leaving, Abdul Muttalib goes to the door of the Kaaba. He goes to the door of the Kaaba. And he holds like the ring that is on the door of the Kaaba, almost like the door handle. He holds the ring, the door handle of the Kaaba. And he says some words. It's like a dua of Abdul Muttalib, it's a supplication, but it's also beautiful poetry. He says, He says that, Oh Allah, Lahum, that, you know, stop them, stop them. Lahum, inna al-abda yamna'u rahlahu famna hilalak. Oh Allah, stop them. Lahum, oh Allah, stop them. And he says, why? Because if any man, inna al-abd, the slave, your slave, a human being, rihlahu. If somebody tries to attack his home, Somebody tries to attack his place, his home, his property. Yamna rahlahu. He defends it. Famna hilalak. So Allah, please defend your home. And what's very interesting, he calls the haram. He calls it hilal. Very interesting because the haram is called the haram because it's sacred. Things are some things are not allowed there. All right, it's it's sacred. It's a sanctuary, and certain things are not allowed there. But for Allah, it's 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 the hilal. For Allah, it's permissible, and it's the only one that everything and anything is permissible for. So He says, "Famna hilalak." So please defend your place, defend this sacred sanctuary. La yaghlibanna salibuhum, wa mihaluhum adwan mihalak. Oh Allah, do not let the cross, do not let their cross dominate here. That they're Christians, all right, and they've come here, so don't let their religion overtake the religion that is meant to be here. And then he says, That all their energies are being focused and being directed in animosity against you. They're attacking you, O oh Allah. They, they're not just attacking a structure. They're not just atta- attacking four walls. They're attacking you, O oh Allah, with all their might and all their energy. But O oh Allah, if you decide that you want to leave them be, and you want to leave the Qibla the, the as it be, you want to get just not interfere between them and the Qibla, and let them have their way with the Kaaba, فَأَمْرٌ مَا بَدَالَكَ Then, O Allah, you know what's best. We trust you. You know what's best. But I'm here to make an appeal. Please defend it. 
And, and oh Allah, you know what they're here and that they're here with animosity, with hatred. So Allah, you defend it. But if you decide, oh Allah, that you leave it be, then that's fine. And they leave Kaaba. Uh, they leave Makkah. They evacuate the city of Makkah. Abraha now approaches the, towards Makkah. He's walking into Makkah with his army. Something very interesting happens. One of those leaders that, that were taken as prisoners, who had tried to fight against Abraha, and this is where you see the difference between men. The difference between men. Some of them, you know, and you know the famous analogy, the famous parable, the famous example given by Ali radiallahu anhu, right? The white ox and the black ox, right? And when one of them sells the other one out, then eventually when the lion or the tiger comes to eat the other ox, he says that, well, I was done the day that I gave the other one up to you. you when you sell another one of your people out, that's the day that you've died actually. You've, you sold yourself out. Right? So those people from Ataif, they were willing to sell out the people in Mecca and they were like, whatever, and we'll even provide directions to you. We'll give you a GPS. We'll help you get there on your way. Right? But then there were some people who stood up. They weren't very successful, or at least it didn't seem like they were successful. But they stood up and they stood their ground and they tried to do what they could. There was some honor, some dignity there. So one of those people was that man by the name of Nufail, who had gathered an army together and tried to fight against Abraha, but he was defeated. When the... And Nufail had been hanging around with the elephant breeder. He'd been hanging around with him for a long time. He'd been watching him, listening to him. And he kind of picked up on how he would communicate with the elephants and how he would get their attention and things like that. He'd been picking it up. Smart man, he's a leader of his people. So as the army's about to depart, he goes over to the largest elephant. All right, the big, the big dog. He goes to the biggest elephant. And it's actually mentioned that this elephant's name was Mahmoud. Alright, he was given a name and he was very revered. He was like a freak of nature. He was this super huge elephant. And that was the one that Abraha used to ride on. That's the one that Abraha would sit on. So he goes over to this huge elephant's ear. Mahmoud kind of gets his attention. And then he does something very interesting. And this is where you see that the, the divine intervention starts to begin here. He lifts, that Narisha actually mentioned, he lifts the ear of Mahmoud, the elephant, and he speaks into his ear. Just talks to him talking to an animal. He just talks to him and he says, listen, you're about to go and attack the house and the place that, that belongs to my creator and your creator. You're about to go and attack the place, the land, the house that belongs to my creator and your creator. Understand what's going on here. So he tells him, Ubruk, Mahmoud, Ubruk ya Mahmoud. Sit down. And Buruk, Al-Buruk, it's called Buruk Al-Ibn. Alright? Or Barak Al-Ba'ir, Buruk Al-Ba'ir. What that refers to is camels have a very distinct behavior. Camels have a very distinct behavior. Camels are like dogs in the sense of their loyalty. They're very loyal, they're very compassionate, they, they're very sentimental. Just like a dog is very close and very sentimental and loyal to his master, camels are like that. A camel, when he grows up with the child, it'll run around with the child, it'll play with the child, it'll sit next to the child like a dog acts, like a puppy behaves. A camel will act the same way. It's very affectionate. That's the correct word. It's a very affectionate animal. But it's kind of different than a dog in the sense of a camel at the same time is a very noble, very honorable animal. It has honor, it has nobility. So like a dog, if you abuse a dog, many times, more often than not, a dog will tolerate the abuse. All right? But a camel won't take it. Like a camel just will not go along with the program. 
Camel has a thing that it does where it sits down. And when it sits down and it's displeased or it's angry and it sits down, it refuses to get back up again. And this is a camel, it's not an ordinary animal. You can't just make it stand. It's not like a goat, all right? You can't pull it by its neck and make it stand up. So camel just refuses, a powerful animal, it just sits and it just ignores you. And it'll ignore you to the point where either you kill it or you leave it be. But it's just, when it's angry, it's angry. It's taking a break. It doesn't want to talk to you right now. All right, that's what camels are like. All right, so it's very distinct behavior. So he tells him, being an Arab, he tells the camel, Ubruk. He tells the elephant, Ubruk, just like you would tell a camel, sit down and don't get back up again. He tells an elephant to do that. Ubruk, ya Mahmoud. min haythu atayt. He says, go back to where you came from. Because you are treading on the sacred ground that belongs to Allah. And then he left his ear. He let him go and he kind of walks away. The narration says, Mahmoud just sits down, just parks it. And this goes completely against an elephant's behavior. Elephants don't act like that. Camels do that. Elephants don't do that. Elephants are trained animals. So it just sits down and just refuses to get back up again. Much like a camel would. And it's very strange. And so everyone starts to run around. Nobody knows what's going on. Even the, camel, uh, the elephant herder, one narration actually, Suhaili, one scholar, Ar-Rawdul Anif, in one of his books, he actually makes mention of this. He says, Sakata ila al-ard. It's not only did he just sit down, but he just laid over on his side. Like the camel just, just laid down on the ground and refuses to get back up again. Just lays out. He refuses to get back up again. And now they're all confused. They're like, what's going on here? We're, it's go time. What's going on? And so he calls Unais. Abraha is angry. He's furious. He calls Unais, the camel breeder. And he says, what do you, what, what's wrong with your camel? I keep saying camel. Yeah, he calls the elephant breeder. And he says, what's wrong with your elephant? What's wrong with your elephant? What's wrong with Mahmoud? Come on, I don't have time for this nonsense. Get, get your act together. So now Unais is over there trying all of his tricks and giving snacks and doing the treats. And he's doing whatever he can. He's all but singing and dancing for this elephant and it just won't get up. So then they finally, he, he tries to make him stand up and walk towards the Kaaba and he sits down again. And so then finally Mahmoud goes, okay, something must have spooked him. So he goes, let's try something different. So he turns him over to the side and the elephant gets up and starts to walk around. As soon as he turns him back towards the Makkah, he sits back down again. And then finally he turns him around in the opposite direction and he gets, and so the elephant gets up and he starts walking and he keeps walking. Second they do a U-turn, they turn around and he sits down again. And so the narration even mentions that they start sticking hooks into his belly. They stick hooks into his belly and trying to lift him and they're lick, injuring this animal, they're hurting him. But he just won't play. He just won't play along. He just won't be game. And so some narrations actually say that he just sat there and he just stayed there and didn't move. He refused to go along. Either way, whatever happens at the army proceeds and they enter into Mecca and that's where exactly we know that the incidents unfold didn't you see how your Lord how he managed how he handled how he took care of the companions of the elephants right and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us exactly what happened so we know that these there were these small small birds are what we would consider the equivalent of sparrows all right, there's a lot of narrations that Ibn Kathir mentions that mention a lot of very exotic, random things about the birds, how the birds looked and what they were like. And so some of the narrations kind of give you the impression 
These were not ordinary birds. They were almost like very strange, weird, unique creation of Allah that were sent just for this purpose. Wallahu ta'ala alam Allah knows best, but we do know that the word that the Quran uses, ababil, that, and even Ibn Kathir mentions a lot of these very exotic narrations are very weak and unreliable. But we know the ababil, that word that's used, the ancient, the classical Arabs would use it for small, small birds, like what we would consider sparrows. So they would use it for that, that, that type of a bird. So these are small, small birds, they come, and the direction is mentioned in the more authentic narrations that they were coming from the from the seaside they were coming from the direction of the ocean and actually the, the Quraysh later on asked people they asked people that lived in that direction the tribes that lived out there did, did you see some birds flying over and they say yeah we saw birds we saw birds we saw birds we saw birds and they trace it all the way back to the people that would literally live near the ocean on the ocean side on the seaside and they asked them and they said these birds just, just the whole sky became covered with birds and these birds these birds just flew in from the ocean we didn't see where they came from so subhanAllah, there was something very miraculous about that. Like these birds just came out of the blue. They flew in from the ocean and they flew straight over Mecca. And then the, the you know, وَأَرْسَلَ عَلَيْهِمْ طَيْرًا عَبَابِيلٍ تَرْمِيهِمْ بِحِجَارَةٍ مِنْ سِجِّيلٍ That it does mention that they had stones. The narrations actually mention that they were small, small, tiny stones the size of chickpeas. Size of chickpeas. And it mentions that the birds were holding three stones each, two in their claws and then one in their beak. And they were flying over and they were tossing these stones. Now, here's something interesting. So now when they start tossing down these stones, they start dropping these stones. Now we know that it decimated, it destroyed, it obliterated Abraha and his army. But what exactly was the dynamic? What exactly happened? Was it just like, is there, you know, and it's understandable. You know, as a kid, you always hear, Allahu Alam, I don't know, I always, kids, we would talk about it. You dropped a penny from the Sears Tower and it would fall this fast and it would, this would happen. Allah knows best whether that stuff true or not. We would have to ask somebody who would actually understand physics or not. But maybe just the physics of it are such that, you know, these even these small pebbles drop from such a velocity, you know, that that would be enough to severely injure people or hurt someone, right? Like when hail falls and things like that, it damages. You see what it does to cars. So it, maybe it's just physics that played a part in it. But nevertheless, there are narrations which give us the impression that no, there was something miraculous. There was something supernatural. There was something out of this world that was going on there. That when these stones would fall, it would literally, if it hit somebody on the arm, it would literally pierce through and cut off their limbs. All right, so they were—they weren't—they. It wasn't just stones falling from the sky. They was almost, these were like bullets. All right, they were flying fast and they were flying hard, and they were literally burning through, tearing through people. So much so that it would fall on the head of the elephant. It would literally cut through the head of the elephant and kill the animal right there on the spot. All right, and so there's actually narrations that mention that it was completely just decimating that there was something miraculous happening here, and this divine intervention was playing. Obviously, the birds themselves and their presence is divine intervention, but even so much so that these pebbles were special, and the way they were falling was special as well. And so, next thing you know, it's just there's these bodies lying all around. Literally, their army is falling left and right, and a lot of them retreat back. And something very specifically that the narrations mention is that not everybody was killed, so that this message would reach back and this created so much lore like a legend right this created lore and legend about the Kaaba 
in Mecca and how sacred this place was. Now this place was untouchable. So it's almost bringing back. So you have this miraculous event happening, divine intervention occurring literally months, two months before the birth of the Prophet And you have this all this respect and this lore and this um, aura being restored to the Mecca, to Mecca, into the Kaaba two months before the birth of the Prophet So you see the very strategic timing of the event as well. Now what happened with Abraham? What happened with Abraha? Narrations talk about that Abraha, he was hit by these stones a few different places in his body. And this is why I mentioned that there was something unique or something special even in these stones and how they were falling. That if somebody was even hit once, not enough to kill the person, he, would, he was able to escape that place. But then that person after a few days would fall very, very ill. He would fall very sick and his body would literally start to rot his body would start to just rot away. And this person would eventually die. Like his body would start to fail. He would become paralyzed and his internal organs would start to fail. And this person would just stop breathing. He would just die. Abraha was, was hit in a few places by these stones, but he was able to escape. And they, they, you know, with the survivors, now this is their king, this is their ruler. They're taking him back to Yemen, trying to get him back to safety. And as he's going, he falls ill and his body starts to rot. And it specifically mentions that his fingers, even his fingers and his toes started to rot and started to fall off. Like his body just started to rot away and his limbs started to fall off to the point that by the time he reached back to, you know, what we know as, you know, the capital today, like Sana'a, by the time he reached back to the center of his kingdom, he was literally a vegetable at this point. Most of his limbs had rotted and fallen off. All right, his body had become completely useless and he had even become physically completely disabled and to the point where he had lost his mind, he was in a vegetative state. And soon after he reached back to Yemen, he ended up dying. And even then they say his heart just stopped beating. It just ceased to exist. But even the condition, the physical condition he was, was just terrible. His limbs had fallen off and he was in a vegetative state. He didn't know anything, he didn't realize anything and he died with this type of, in this type of a condition um, and with this type of a humiliation. So you see that how elaborate and how powerful and how convincing and strong the defense of the Kaaba in Mecca was by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we know Surah Al-Fil is of course, it speaks about that entire incident and what exactly occurred and transpired at that time. And it's safe to say, it suffices to say that this ended up defining that generation. People ended up identifying themselves with that great incident. This was known as Amul Fil. And strategically, now speaking about the birth of the Prophet it was also very strategic as I just mentioned that it restored the aura, the respect back to Mecca, back to the Haram, back to the and it specifically was like this major divine act that happened that made people at least at some level become conscious of the fact that there is a higher power at work, that these idols are not the only thing that matters, but there is a supreme being, there is a greater power at work here. And it at least started to bring people's attention back to that. One very interesting thing that I found really, really fascinating was that Aisha radiallahu anha, Aisha radiallahu anha in a narration, all right, that's mentioned by Imam al-Bayhaqi in his um, uh, in his books, Dala'il uh, al-Nubuwa. He mentions it in his books that Aisha radiallahu anha, she says, لَقَدْ رَأَيْتُ قَائِدَ الْفِيلِ وَسَائِسَهُ بِمَكْهَ أَعْيَمَيْنِ مُقْعَدَيْنِ يَسْتَطْعِمَانِ She says that Aisha radiallahu anha, now I want you to imagine how young she is. So how much later on she was born after the Amul Fil. 
Alright, so Aisha radiallahu anha is born like 40 years, 40 plus years after Amul Fi, after the year of the elephant. So I want you to imagine how much later she's born. She says that not only was the story of the invasion of the army of the elephants famous and how Allah defended the Kaaba, but she said that that man who was the elephant breeder, Unais, him and another guy, his assistant. So the elephant breeder, Unais and his assistant, they were still in Mecca 40 years later. And we used to know, people used to know them. And we would see them. And they were blind. In that attack that happened, they had gone blind. They were blind and they used to sit around on the corners of the streets and they would beg and they would ask for food. And she said that we used to often reflect on that on how Allah allowed these people, to, a few of them to remain alive and remain amongst the people so that that lore, that legend could live on. So that people could remember exactly what happened. So she says, I myself, I saw Unais, the Sa'is of the field, the, the elephant breeder and his assistant, whose name I don't remember, but she says, I remember seeing both of them and they were blind and they would sit around in corners and they would beg from people. So it's mentioned that, and one other thing that's very interesting, some of the scholars they mention, An-Naqash, he mentions this in his tafsir of Surah Al-Fil, that now imagine that the scene in Mecca after the invasions over, after the birds have come and gone, everything is said and done. When the people of Mecca come in, now you have all these... You have literally maybe thousands of bodies lying around in Mecca. You have these huge elephants lying around, like what do you do with all that? So they say actually immediately after the army was destroyed and the people retreated, there was a huge storm. A huge storm and it caused a flood, like a flash flood. And that flood literally carried all the bodies outside of Mecca. So this, this is mentioned in the books of Tafsir, that Allah literally cleaned up. Not only did He protect, but then He cleaned up afterwards. SubhanAllah. And this, all of this, this incident, this invasion of the army of the elephants occurred in the beginning of the month of Muharram. So it happened at the beginning of the year and so that's why it's also very strategic. It was like at the new year, it happened at the beginning of the month of Muharram. And then of course we know that in, um, you know, depending on the difference of narrations, but anywhere from between 50 to 60 days after this event happened, the Prophet of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was born. And so, inshallah, we'll go ahead and stop here and we'll start up from here again, inshallah. Um, just, inshallah, as an announcement, because some of the brothers and sisters have been attending regularly and the people watching at home as well. Um, inshallah, next week I'm going for Hajj, inshallah. So I get to kind of go and kind of put a, put a place to the name, I guess, is the other way around. But nevertheless, inshallah, I get to go and visit the Mecca, visit the Haram, visit the Kaaba, inshallah. So I'm leaving for Hajj next week, so we won't be having dars next week. And so the dars will be on pause for about three to four weeks, inshallah. Um, so we'll, uh, I'll definitely, uh, I know Imam Zia is going as well, but nevertheless, we'll get the word out to the brothers and we'll also post it on the website and stuff, inshallah, for exactly the date that the dars will be starting up again. But it should not be a break longer than about three to four weeks, inshallah, just depending on um, the situation when I get back. But so break will be, on, uh, the dars will be on hiatus for, for a few weeks here, inshallah. And then when we get back from Hajj, we'll resume. Uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the proper understanding of the life of the Prophet and allow us to benefit from it. And I also request your prayers that may Allah SWT allow um, myself and everyone else who's going for Hajj to do the Hajj properly and may Allah SWT accept from us. Jazakum Allah khairan. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi, subhanakallah wa bihamdik.